Hello, everybody. Welcome. I am Rachel Levy-Lesser. And I am Stephanie Goldstein. And this is Life's Accessories, a podcast about accessories, clothing, fashion, and the stories behind them. We are not fashion designers. No, we are not. We are not even what some may call fashionistas or fashion magazine editors, although I did work at InStyle Magazine for a period of time. And I'm a big fan of the September issue of Vogue. Same. We (laughs) are really just two friends who love to accessorize and who remember what we wore on pretty much every meaningful occasion to us. And that is what we love to talk about. You can follow us on Instagram at Life's Accessories Podcast and also on Facebook and TikTok. Well, today we have a very special guest. We do indeed. She, listeners, is actually the reason that we are are all here today. She's the matchmaker. She set Stephanie and myself up, and her name is Amy Blumenfeld. Welcome, Amy. Welcome, Amy. We're so happy you're here, but we're going to do some housekeeping first. I'm going to go into my serious voice and give um, your background and and read a bit about you. So buckle up here. So Amy Blumenfeld is an award-winning author and journalist. Her debut novel, The Cast, was selected as a New York Post Best Book of the Week, and her articles and essays have appeared in various publications, including the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Oh, the Oprah magazine, as well as on the cover of People. Born and raised in Queens, New York, Amy graduated from Barnard College of Columbia University and received a master's degree from the Columbia University School of Journalism, where she was the recipient of the James A. Weckler Award for National Reporting. Amy lives in New York with her husband and daughter. She is currently writing her second novel. Welcome, Amy. I love that formal introduction Thank um, you. Yeah. before we actually let Amy talk. Amy's like, can I talk? Um, so Stephanie um, read her formal bio and I mentioned this a little bit. So Amy actually did introduce um, Stephanie and myself. I met Amy speaking of reporting. I think it was like 10 to 15 years ago when I was a reporter myself and covering a story for a Philadelphia paper. And I interviewed her about some of the work she was doing with Memorial Sloan Kettering, which we're going to get into later. And after we had the phone conversation, this was pre-Zoom, we started playing the name game and we realized we knew about a thousand people in common. And I'll let Stephanie tell you more, but um, they met in journalism school being the great journalists turned everything else that they are. And when I started working on a baking show, which is a totally separate story, Amy said, you have to meet my friend Stephanie because she's also a writer and an awesome baker and you have to get together. And we did last year. You can actually watch that video of Stephanie baking on Blaze Baking with Rach on YouTube. Um, We can talk more about that later, but thank you for setting us up because we had instant kismet and we realized that we need to do a show together. So here we are. Thank you, and Amy. A, and, and, a, and a mutual college friend introduced Amy and me because we were both heading off to graduate school together. And the moment we met, we became fast friends. And that's, I mean, just just incredible. So so happy to have you both in my life. This is our this is our <laughs> schmoopy love fest, friendship fest. But we are gonna get yes. in and Stephanie's gonna ask Amy yeah. about what you're all here to know about what is her life's accessory. That yeah. So so Amy, now it's your turn. Tell Guys, us. We, we want to hear. Yeah. 
Thank you for having me. And one of my greatest joys is introducing people. And this is one of my best matches ever. So I, I have like great pride and joy um, seeing this and I'm thrilled for this new, you know, endeavor. So good luck with it. And Thank I'm you. really honored to be your first guest. We're so happy to have you here. We're so we happy you said a, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. How could we, couldn't, I not? <laughs> we couldn't ask for a better first guest. But tell us, Amy, um, what meaningful item from your closet do you want to tell us about today? So I'm going to tell you about a very, like, no frills. I'm not really a fashionista. Um, it is a green, apple green waffle Henley from The Gap, circa, like, 2005. Um it is truly like, it's this type of thing you could use as pajamas. It's something, you know, you would just garden in the backyard, go running errands on a Sunday morning, but it happens to be the shirt that I wore the day that my daughter was born. And uh, she was born via surrogacy. And I was actually wearing, um, we were in a hotel room um, out West, which is where she was born. And I was wearing that morning a pink shirt, just, I just threw something on. And right before I went out the door of the hotel room to go to the hospital, I thought to myself, wait a minute, if the, cause we didn't know what we were having. So I thought, all right, if it's a boy, I don't want all of the pictures to be me in a pink shirt. And for this, my son one day to look at these photos and think, oh, she wanted a girl. So <laughs> I- so smart. So I quickly ran back into the bedroom and I whipped off the pink shirt and I took this green waffle shirt that I just packed to relax in while we were out West. And I put that on because I figured it was a happy color um, and it was also neutral. So that ended up being the shirt and green is my favorite color. It always has been. So that was you know, it just, it, it all sort of came together, greening that, meaning that green was always my color. My eyes are green. And when I was little, it was my grandparents actually bought a green car because it was my favorite color. When oh, I was wow. Born. They had a Chrysler Cordoba in this like, it reminded me of like vacation with Chevy Chase. When <gasps> it's that metallic <laughs> P car in the station wagon. Yes. So it wasn't metallic P it was more metallic apple. <laughs> green, I love it. Apple, but and that was basically like the color of this, not metallic, but, um, so that's, so yeah, so that's how it, it became my, my fra favorite shirt because Mia was born. I, you know, was wearing that it was my favorite color and I held my child for the first time wearing this shirt and she was, you know, nestled against my chest on these waffles. And, <laughs> uh, and so I wear this shirt as free, I'm going to sound like a lunatic, but this is the shirt that I wear every year on her birthday. I love that. I love that. Can you show us the shirt? Do you have it with you? Sure. So we can take a look. Here you go. Oh, wow. That is look amazing. That. Exactly. Like, exactly. As you described for no our listeners. Frills, waffle, see, button. So our, our listeners can't see the beautiful Henley. And by the way, who named it a Henley? I love the Henley branding. I know. But um, we'll put pictures up on Instagram for sure. But it's in pretty good shape, I have to say. Because I wear it once a year. Right. <laughs> so, ah, that was my question. Do you wear it on any other days? You know, I think when she was little, I probably did. But then I stopped. And okay. I, now it's just, it's become this like special birthday shirt. 
Uh, does so, she does she know it's the special birth, birthday shirt? Has she figured that out? I'm absolutely, sure absolutely. you probably told her. The whole family thinks I'm crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's on we talk about here on the Life Successories podcast. Um, we talk a lot about sort of meaning and memory in items. And this is, you know, a great story and fairly obvious as to why you would wear this every year. By the way, not everybody would wear it every year on her birthday. So I think that's so awesome. But when you wear it, like, does it smell a certain way? Does it feel a certain way? Does it bring you back to the day? Has that changed as she's gotten older? And by the way, props to you on and that it still totally fits you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it smells like Tide. It doesn't smell like anything <laughs> like special. Okay. Um, but it always brings me back. It always brings me back. Um, and that's, I think, why I, you know, I, I just stopped wearing it during the rest of the year. It's only on February 27th that I wear this shirt. Um, it was a really, you know, having Mia was such, as both of you know, it was just, listen, having a child for anybody is an incredibly special experience. But when you're told at, you know, 14, 15, that the likelihood of you having your own child is pretty slim to none. And then by the time you're married and ready to start a family, surrogacy becomes an option, even though it was illegal in the state of New York. Um, so we had to jump through a ton of hoops to make it happen, but it was just miraculous that the doctors at Sloan Kettering had the foresight to protect my ovaries. They couldn't protect the uterus from, from radiation because I w- was hit by chemo and radiation and everything, but somehow- Wait, Amy, for our listeners, because we know this, not to interrupt you, but can you give us a little sure. bit of the backstory on what you were just talking about with chemo and radiation, which I know became a part of the inspiration for your wonderful yeah. novel, The Cast, but you know how you, and I, I told you, I told our listeners initially that I interviewed you for the work on Memorial Stone Kettering. So this is all going to come together once Amy kind of- Sure. So I was, I was diagnosed at 13 with um, Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a form of cancer. And um, after a year of uh, treatment at a different hospital, um, we thought I was fine. It turns out I went off of that treatment after about a year and a month later, all the symptoms returned. So my parents switched my treatment to Sloan Kettering and they took a look at me and they said, well, there are two options here. You can either um, have additional conventional chemotherapy cocktails, just different ones, but the likelihood of that working is pretty slim or you are a good candidate for what would be an experiment. We've done this on adolescents with with, um, leukemia, but not on adolescents with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's called an autologous bone marrow transplant. So it turns out I was, my blood was clean. So they were able to extract my bone marrow, freeze it, then destroy my immune system with high doses of chemo and high doses of radiation. I went into an isolation, a reverse isolation room for about two months at the end of ninth grade. And I took my regents exams in the hospital mm-hmm. math and bio was the best scores I ever got. Never got those scores again. Didn't everyone at the hospital help you study or something like yeah, that? I remember there were <laughs> residents and fellows in nurses yeah. who came in and hung out with me because I was bored out of my mind. I mean, I didn't feel well, yeah. but I, and they helped me study for, it was bio and math sequential too, which doesn't exist. Wow. But, um, and then they posted my scores on, at the top of the nurse's station. So it was, it was, oh. it was, it was, yeah, it was very nice. Um, so I took the tests in between blood transfusions actually, but anyway, um, so I went to Sloan Kettering and they did this autologous bone marrow transplant. And we were very lucky that my 
my, I was able to donate to myself because my brother and my parents were not matches. So if I had not been able to donate to myself, we would have had to have a worldwide search for a donor. So I had this experimental treatment and when they did the radiation portion of it, they were so smart. And the doctors at Sloan Kettering had the foresight to have a surgery before I went into the hospital where they shifted my ovaries out of the line of the radiation and then shielded them. And so even though I had the chemo and they didn't know what would eventually happen with the ovaries, at least they protected them from radiation. Mm -hmm. So years later, when I was about, you know, trying to have a child, we realized that we, I couldn't carry because the radiation hit the uterus. However, the eggs, because of the ovaries being protected, remained healthy. I was incredibly, incredibly blessed and lucky to have the doctors at Sloan Kettering have that foresight so early on. And this is back in 1989. Mm. So fast forward to 2005, my husband and I are ready to start a family. And so we realized that we're going to need to use a surrogate that we can try to use my eggs. If not, we would have to go have a donor, but we were able to use mine, but we couldn't do it in the state of New York because it was illegal to do that, to have somebody else to you know, carry your child for you. So we went to Yale in Connecticut and Yale had a phenomenal uh, third-party reproduction program. And they are the ones who you know, extracted the eggs, we created the embryo. We found a surrogate out West. We flew her in. She was checked out by the doctors at, at Yale. And then eventually we transferred our embryo to her. She flew back to out West nine and we flew out regularly for ultrasounds and stuff like that. And then eventually in February of 2006, our daughter was born, our whole family. I have a picture of this to show you our, my husband's parents, my parents, my brother and my sister-in-law, my aunt and uncle, we all flew out. Ah, oh, wow. Um, for, cause we knew it was, it was a C-section. So we all okay. knew um, so actually here, this is, this is a picture of my husband and me wearing the green shirt and the nurse and we're wheeling Mia down oh. harder. Oh, beautiful. So, that is so oh my cute. goodness. We're going to post these pictures later. My aunt and uncle the green sister. stands out too, which is nice. It does. It does. Yeah, it does. It's and a nice color. <laughs> when they took this picture, they didn't even know uh, that it was a girl. Um, they right. had not yet met Mia. And this is a photo of everybody standing outside the little nursery where they clean her up. Oh, oh, oh wow. For our listeners, wow. there's like, it looks like a clown car. It there's does. like a million looks, heads jumping out right. to try to see this little baby. Cheering, yeah. smiling. Yes. And so this is a picture with the green shirt of holding her for the first time and feeding her. Beautiful. Beautiful. Amy looks the same Amy, as she did. Yeah. Amy, that Amy does not age. Amy, you know, I've heard your story. Rachel's heard your story many times before. And I have to say every single time I hear it, I'm just so moved by it and, and how you conquered this disease and how the bravery of having to go through basically an experiment as you described it. And it's just, it's just remarkable. I mean, it's beautiful how, you know, you went through all of that and now look at your beautiful family and, and, and thank God for, for all of it. Um, I'm just, it just is incredible to me. Thank you. It's amazing. Um, 
Can I ask you as a follow-up, how does Mia, I mean, I know, and you can tell our listeners how you, I know this story a little bit, but how over the years, I realize Mia is a teenager now, but how did you tell her about her being um, a baby of a surrogate and how has that changed over the years? And I know you being your creative writer self, I'm sure had some good ways of telling her. And I'm just curious how that's evolved over the years. And I'm sure just you mentioned the time frame that it was illegal in New York. Things have changed so much over the last 16 years. So what has that process been like for, I guess, you as a mom telling Mia and just as your family um, being involved in surrogacy? In terms of the legality in New York, I think in February of maybe 2020 or 21, um, it became legal in the state of New York. So um, fortunately, it was it's going to be so much easier for so many more people. We had to jump through hoops and fly here and there and drive a million miles. But um, I'm so glad that the laws have changed. Um, In terms of Mia, um, very early on, she may have been about two, two and a half. She uh, maybe actually probably younger. She saw, you know, my sister-in-law pregnant. She saw my friends pregnant. And she said, I want to see pictures of when I was in your belly. And so I, I decided very early on, I would never lie to her. I Mm -hmm. always wanted her to know the truth. I never wanted her to one day be shocked by this information. And I just wanted to be part of the fabric of her life and and her story Um, and be proud because we couldn't be more proud of this. And so I wanted to instill that pride very early on in her. And so I showed her pictures of her inside um, our, the belly of our surrogate. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I said a couple of things. I said, one of them was that, you know, uh, mommy's belly was broken. Um, mm-hmm. but look how beautiful, even things that are broken can work in beautiful, amazing, wondrous ways. Um, and the other thing I told her is I made it, she always, she's always loved to bake. So like us, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, she could be on your baking show. So, you need to have me on the baking show. Yes. Yeah. She would love that. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I, I used a baking analogy and I came up with this and said, listen, it's like, just like baking a cake, you know, daddy and I were the ingredients, the oven was broken. So we just <laughs> put you into somebody else's oven to bake. And nine months later, you're Here you are hooked on your birthday. And that's that. And that's, that was how she initially processed it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, it just, whenever a question popped up we would sit and we would talk about it and I would answer whatever, you know, at, at her level. And then when yeah. she started asking questions and asked for Cheez-Its and Oreos, then we went to the <laughs> Cheez-Its and the Oreos, whatever <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, it they cut off <laughs> kids. Right. right. So, um, and then it became really interesting because at one point she was in kindergarten and there was a recess, like free play time. And she and some other friends were taking these baby dolls and putting it under their shirts and actually she didn't do it, but her friends were doing it. And they said, well, where's your baby? And she's like, oh, my friend's carrying my baby for me. So- <laughs> that is amazing. I well, love yes, that. I love that. Then that leads to, there's a ripple effect from that. So then the next day I go to pick up and there's another mom and she's like, so I, I hear this interesting story about like Mia had a, a, you know, a friend carrying and then that's how she was born. So she ended up sharing this story with her friends in kindergarten. And then I had, once I realized that 
I had to go to the principal and the teacher and say, listen, I just want you to be aware that these conversations may come up. So it ended up being a very fascinating conversation that I had. I happened to be close with the principal of the school. So I, it was an open conversation and very easy, but that could have gotten very complicated to have yes. a five-year-old yes. yeah. third-party reproduction to other kids. But on the flip side, as a parent, I wanted her to have that pride in herself. And so, you know, these are conversations that are going to change, you know, over time and are changing. And then parents, you know, may want to put it on their radar. So. Yes. And, and were, were parents overall supportive and they understood and yeah, completely. Complete. That's very cool. I could just that imagine is, that is that, like <laughs> Mia, Mia, Mia wants somebody else to carry her baby. Huh? That's interesting. Can we? Um, can you talk a little bit about how your your story, your beautiful story that you just shared, informed the book that you wrote called The Cast, which everybody could buy. Google it. Um, Amy Bloomfield The Cast. It's a fantastic. Fabulous book. It it's, is a fantastic read, and you won't put it down. Truly, and I'm not saying that because you're my friend. It's really good. So can you, Amy, can you talk about sort of how from back in your journalism school days with Stephanie, how this came to be in the form that it um, eventually came out into the world? Sure. Um, So when we were in graduate school, we had to write a master's project and they told us at the beginning of the year to pick a topic that would sustain your interest throughout the course of the year. I had no idea what I wanted to write about and true to form, I waited until the last second to submit my topic. Awesome. It happened to be that the day before the deadline to submit your topic, I had my annual checkup at Sloan Kettering. So I'm sitting in the waiting room in the pediatrics department, which by the way, I'm 48 years old and I still go back to the pediatrics department because I'm an experiment and I'm sitting there among all of these kids. (laughs) Well, you still look like a kid. I love it. I know. Exactly. It's it's very, you know, like I don't forget, like Mm -hmm. it's very still, it's very much present in my head, what it was like to be a kid. And going back every year and sitting among these parents who are my age or even younger, Mm -hmm. it's just, anyway. Um, So I was sitting in the waiting room and there was, I had the little uh, plastic ID bracelet that they give you when you check in. Yeah. And I'm just, I have my little reporter's notebook as I'm waiting for my name to be called and I'm jotting down different ideas that are totally not sticking for the master's project. And the woman seated to my right turns to me and she said, oh, are you waiting for somebody? She thought I was a friend, a sister, yes. or, you know, an aunt, somebody. Um, and she, you know, she clearly was very nervous. This was clearly her f- first visit there with her daughter who was seated on her right. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, actually. And I pulled up my sleeve and I showed her my, I, the plastic ID bracelet. And I said, I'm a patient. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I was treated here years ago and she was sort of blown away by that. And we ended up talking and I answered some of her questions. And after my appointment, I went back and found her and her daughter in the back And um, I spent some time answering their questions and hanging out with them. And then I walked back from the east side to the west side with my, the wheels turning in my head, Mm -hmm. thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to do. It's about adult. And I planned out the whole thing in my head as I walked back. And I was like, it's going to be about adult survivors of childhood cancer, the impact on the family, the long-term effects, Mm -hmm. how this not just affects the family and the patient, but the loved ones, the friends, the, you know, so that's how that came to be. Um, And then at graduation, our beloved professor, David Claytel, who, Mm. uh, who he truly, he was a gem. He, He came up to me at graduation and said, you really need to turn this into a book. And so 
I was 23 at the time. I did not have the money to just set aside and write a book. (laughs) I needed to work. I needed health insurance. I was actually moving back home because I in part paid for graduate school. I had nothing left. So I went back to Queens, lived with my, my parents for a year. And, you know, when I had some downtime, I would sock away a chapter here and there, but I needed a job. So I didn't have time to write a book then, but what he said and how deeply those interviews and writing that master's project, it it really affected me. And it became this thing that I couldn't let go of. And so I knew one day it would turn into something. And I just assumed that it would be some form of nonfiction, that I would continue interviewing people. I would continue going to these, you know, support groups, not that I was not participating in, but I was using it under the guise of a reporter which was also a fascinating process because I was approaching all of these things that I'd never really thought about from an arm's length, like from the, you know, under the skies of a reporter. And so I learned a lot of things that I just never occurred to me about survivorship. And, um, but it was turning into a book that I wouldn't want to read. It was dry. It was not boring, but it was, it was just too serious. And I would never in a million years pick up a cancer book. It just not, and I support anybody who does, but it's just not my thing. And so, but I knew that there were important lessons here. I knew there were things that I needed to impart. And, and I think also being an experiment, I felt this obligation and this duty. If I am this guinea pig on the forefront of science and, and I am thriving and surviving, I need to pay it forward in a way. And there's no way on earth, I was going to medical school with my science abilities. So if I could write. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. 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 We all. We're creative so, people. That's right. That's not the doctors and nurses are not creative. No, no, there are plenty no. who are, but right. I would not be one of them. So We're just not that anyway, good at math. So I figured this is my way of giving back. So eventually after many iterations of this book, I decided I need to write something that I would want to read. And what do I like to read? Contemporary fiction. Mm -hmm. And so I thought of, um, I like to read things about friends, like friend groups. Like I just find it fascinating. And, you know, The Big Chill was an Mm -hmm. inspiration. My mom loved that movie. The Red Book by Deborah uh, Kogan. I mean, that that was, uh, you know, a friend, it was all different perspectives, a lot of Jennifer Weiner, but like a lot of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. just resonated with me. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what if I create a book about a group of friends and they grow up together and one of them is sick and then, but they're all dealing with our own stuff in their lives that everybody can relate to, regardless of whether or not, you know, somebody who's had cancer in your life. And, and that's really how it came to be. And then I, so I had these group of friends from childhood. This one girl got sick. They all rally around her. She survived 25 years later, they reunite over a holiday weekend and all of their lives are in different places. They're there to support each other. There's a religious, you know, the one who's dealing with, you know, religion, you know, how observant does she want to be? And she's an Orthodox Jew. There's another one who's having a marriage that's falling apart. Another one who's sort of finding himself. I mean, they're all sort of over the, all over the map and then they are there to support each other. And then there, of course, is a crisis that, you know, they're dealing with over the course of the weekend. And it's very interesting to see how each one of them reacts and responds to it. Um, But 
I thought, okay, how am I going to bond this group? It's not enough for them to have just been there as friends watching, Mm -hmm. you know, a friend go through it. And I thought back to my own experience and one of the greatest gifts I have ever truly ever received the videotape called Amy Night Live. And it was done in Queens at our synagogue where I grew up. And, um, and actually the friend who connected me to Stephanie, um, his family is the one who sort of organized this and, um, shout out, shout out. Yeah, seriously. Um, and it was amazing. It was a Saturday. They knew I loved Saturday night live and it was inspired by, uh, you know, the Saturday night live skits and musical guests. And so they all got together in the multi-purpose room of our synagogue in Queens <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> And so good. there was a bar mitzvah going up in the ballroom <laughs> upstairs. The cater was bringing down the leftovers that the people didn't want, setting it up on the corner. They had, you know, the rabbi got dressed up. The They had all these wigs and skits and line dances and, you know, just silliness, 90 minutes of silliness purely to make me laugh. And then somebody delivered it to my hospital room and I just watched that nonstop for seven Oh, wow. And so that was laughter was truly the best medicine. Yes. And friendship we know that. and support. And Ugh. it was my parents' friends. There were about 40 of them. So they were my parents' friends and their children. And so it was multi-generational. It was just, it was just full of love. And that is that was the springboard for me. So I decided that the cast, these the groups of friends in my book would have bonded in ninth grade and yeah. created their own little videotape to help their friend who was sick. Now, mind you, this is a work of fiction. That was, that was based on truth. It was inspired by the video. The story was originally inspired by my experience with Hodgkin's lymphoma and being an experiment and being in the hospital and the reactions, you know, of my parents and everybody, but it, the creative process, like it just took off from there. So it is a work of fiction inspired by truth. Well, it's, it's incredible. We know you're working on your next novel, Amy. Are there themes, similar themes sprinkled throughout? Do you want to talk a little bit about what we can expect? I can't wait for it. Thank you. Um, It's, it's very different. It's a completely different topic. However, the friendship theme of support and love for those people early on in your life is Mm -hmm. consistent that that is the the common thread there's a very different feel um and topic um it's more about the justice system but it's it's um and and the media um but it's definitely you definitely have that friendship easy read it's not a heavy it's it's heavy in topic and it's thought-provoking just similar to the cast is thought-provoking yeah um and it's and it's about friendship but the, the but the 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 plot is different. So let me ask this question as you're writing, do you have any like clothing rituals for your writing? Do you, do you have a writing Henley? Do you, what do you like? Oh my God. We need to call the gap and brand the Amy writing Henley. I can just see you there all cozy on your couch or your bed or wherever you do your best writing. I know I've, I know you, you write in various parts of your house, not necessarily like no. at the desk, right? No, Great question. no, no, not yeah. at a desk. It is, it rotates every day. I'm in a different place. I'm often on the couch with a snack table as my desk. Awesome. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> and sometimes it's just on my lap. Sometimes I'm in bed. It depends on the weather. It depends on the day. It depends on how I'm feeling. You know, sometimes it's tea. Lately, I've been doing just a bit of coffee because if I have too much, I don't feel well, but it's amazing. <laughs> I love the taste of coffee, like the jolt, but sometimes it's too much for me. But yes, it yeah, I, I I move around the beverage changes in the clothing. <laughs> it's pretty consistent in sweatpants. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Jerry, are you writing, writing every day? Are you writing every day? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Good for well, you. Thank That's you for amazing. taking the time from your busy writing schedule yes. in your, in your sweatpants to come. And, you know, you can't tell cause we're on zoom. We, we all sort of look nice in sweaters. And I think Stephanie and I are, I think our faces hurt from smiling and we're a little teary too. Cause it's just, it's such an awesome story that you told and, and what you've made of sort of your life story so far. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Incredible story. I'm just, I'm just blown away because you've just, everything has just been so cumulative, right? I mean, you've just built on experience after experience in a really meaningful, meaningful way. Aww, and we are glad you went with green that day because I, I get yeah. it. The pink would have been a little much. Yeah. I actually didn't know if I was having a boy or girl both times. Yeah. I had a boy, then a girl, but both times I brought pink pajamas and blue pajamas to the hospital. And then the next day I wore whatever, you know, whatever match. That's, that's funny because I had, um, I didn't know what I was having both times either, but in my gut, I said, I'm going to be a boy mom and sure enough, two boys. But each time I went to the hospital, I had their little going home outfits, which were beige. And I had a little pink grow grain bow that I tied and attached to it thread with the needle that I packed in my toiletry bag so that if I had a girl, I would just sew that bow onto the little top. So Needless to say, I never used that bow. You are a fashionista. Oh, really? I know the grow grain, really. Right. I love the Henley. I hope you continue to wear that for years and I years do too. and years. In good health, so awesome. in good health in good and health. happiness. Yes. Be- before we go, and we could really talk to you forever, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and your fabulous book, The Cast, and follow sure. you and all that good Amy B stuff? I am on uh, Instagram, Amy Blumenfeld author, and you can find me on my website, amyblumenfeld.com. Awesome. Wonderful, did, I just, Amy. did I just name you Amy B? Does anybody ever call you that? <laughs> Sorry about that. It works. It works. It works. It works. It works. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. This oh, was truly a pleasure. It is my pleasure, my honor, and I'm thrilled for this new um this new endeavor for you. So well, we thank owe, you. We we owe it all to you. And thank you to our loyal listeners for listening. We're so happy you could meet our friend, Amy. We hope she feels like your friend. And we will talk to you next time on the Life's Accessories podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.